0: Uh, it's not good enough in the the world of COVID nineteen and the post COVID nineteen world that we hope will soon uh, be upon us to look in the rearview mirror and try to recreate an economy and and all of the systems that go with that exactly as it was in the early spring months of two thousand twenty. I, I think this is an opportunity and maybe is a silver lining in this crisis that we're in, and that we can take a moment to say, how do we want to uh, invest our precious resources going forward? And, and that very well, I think, is a piece of the restoration of passenger rail service.
1: This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today's episode is my favorite sort of conversation. I went into it knowing very little, if anything, about the topic and I learned a ton and ended up having a ton of fun doing it. That topic is the effort to resurrect passenger rail service in Southern Montana. This has long been a vision of Missoula County Commissioner Dave Strohmeyer. And Dave's teamed up with Jordan Hess, Missoula City Councilman and Director of Transportation at the University of Montana, along with Jim Matthews, President and CEO of the Rail Passengers Association, to advance a serious initiative to make this happen. And they make a strong case, starting with the history of passenger rail in Montana and moving through the various public benefits of such an investment. It's refreshing in this time of political gridlock and economic uncertainty to think of bold infrastructure projects that could put people to work and improve equity in our society. As I said, I learned a ton in this conversation, and I hope that you do too. And please note that we had some trouble with Dave's audio in the first 10 minutes. It improves after that, and I hope you stick around to hear what these fellows have to say right now. Okay, so we're here today with Dave Strohmeyer, Jim Matthews, Jordan Hess. Fellas, thanks for coming on the podcast. You bet. Be Thank here. you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So, you are the dream team, part of the dream team that's trying to bring passenger rail back to Southern Montana. We're going to talk about all of that. But first of all, I'd love to love the audience to know a little bit more about who you are, Dave, one of the Missoula County Commissioners. Um, yeah. Tell us what that job is, what it means. Why are you working on this challenge?
0: You bet. So a uh, county commissioner in the state of Montana is a blend of both the executive and legislative branches of government. So think about a uh, typical city council and mayor. Uh, those are rolled into one by way of county commissioners in this state. So we do both jobs. Why rail? Uh, uh, transportation is really part of the, the uh fabric of what knits together our communities, both here in my own Missoula County, but mm-hmm. across the region and nation. And uh, I think over time, many of us have realized that a real missing component of a robust transportation system economically and socially is passenger rail. And that's something that we are hoping to attend.
1: Super. Okay, well, Jim, let's move on to you. Jim, you are the president and CEO of the Rail Passengers Association. Um, first of all, what is what is your organization all about? And um, yeah, how are you involved in this in this effort in Montana?
2: Hi. So uh, yeah, the Rail Passengers Association uh, is the nation's oldest and largest uh, advocate for uh, passenger rail and public transportation and. Uh, what's called first mile, last mile, how you get to and from the station. Okay. Uh, we've been around more than 50 years. We actually helped to create Amtrak We, uh, back in the day. And, uh, and we're still out there fighting for passenger rail and, and transit and uh, everything in between uh, in public transportation. And we do it because uh, we think that it makes communities uh, safer and healthier and better. Uh, we have uh, tens of thousands of members all across the country. These are individual members, volunteers. And what we do is we do the research and the, uh, the analysis to help them advocate for rail in their communities. So they can go visit with their mayors or their county commissioners or their senators or anyone else and make the case for passenger rail where they live.
1: And where are you all headquartered?
2: We are based in Washington, D.C., and uh, we have folks all over the country, as I say, but we uh, were primarily based in Washington, D.C.
1: Super. OK, Jordan. Jordan Hess with uh, Missoula City Council, as well as transportation office at the University of Montana. Uh, welcome to, to you, Jordan. Tell us how you fit into this picture.
3: Yeah, thanks a lot, Justin. Um, I guess first and foremost, I am a transportation enthusiast, um, uh, all forms of, of active and sustainable transportation. Um, in my day job, I'm the director of transportation at the University of Montana under the Associated Students of the University of Montana. And then I moonlight as a Missoula City Council member where I chair the Land Use and Planning Committee um, and uh, really have been in, uh, uh, interested and engaged in um, in. Uh, active and sustainable modes of transportation. Uh, for my entire career, um, I um, work in transit uh, as my day job, and I think um, uh, transit, as well as long-range, uh, long-distance passenger rail, um, really is the great equalizer in our society. We can we can bring people together uh, in a sustainable mode of transportation um, that is community-oriented, um, that is um, you know good for our communities, good for our climate, um, and and good for our society. Um, so, real excited to be part of the team here.
1: Awesome. We're going to talk about all of those motivations and more as, as we go through this conversation Um, before we do kind of a little table setting and and a little history. And and I think about my personal experience um, with kind of the lack of passenger rail um, here in Montana. You know, I moved here from Seattle in 2012. and, And at that time during my time in Seattle, they were kind of nowhere with, with passenger rail, and then really started to ramp up, and in the last, you know, eight years since I've been you know, going back to visit, how light rail has transformed getting around in that city that was previously really difficult to get around, and it's still difficult to get around in if you're driving, but on the rail, it's it's really quite easy and quite a good experience. Moved here, and, you know, one of the first things you do when you're near to Miss- Missoula, other than do a bunch of awesome outdoor stuff, is you go to the farmer's market and you see those trains coming right through town and the train station there. And then only to find I live in this new place and it's really hard to visit because it's a long drive from anywhere else and the train doesn't come here. Like how, what, the train goes through town, why doesn't it bring people through? It just seems like I was a head scratcher. So let's talk a little bit about the history. You know, what has been the history? I, I see the word restore features prominently in the language of your effort. That means that passenger rail at one time was here, presumably. Um, Talk about that and talk about why it's not here now. Uh, David, maybe start with you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it truly is a matter of trying to remember where we've been in the past as a guide to where we might go into the future. Uh, Until 1979, we had passenger trains, Amtrak service, right through Missoula, Montana. You could jump on a train at the north end of Higgins Avenue and go to points east and west, be that Seattle, Portland, or uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and and Chicago. And that was uh, a component at the time of a much more robust passenger rail system that we had throughout the state. Mm -hmm. So we have the remnant empire builder along the High Line still, and that is an offshoot of the Great Northern Railway that was established uh, clear back in in 1893. Uh, Our first passenger trains uh, followed upon the completion of the Northern Pacific Railroad through the southern tier of the state, and that includes Missoula. So
1: Jim, you know, as as part of a national organization, uh, you know, that this loss of passenger rail in Southern Montana, is that consistent with some national trends that were going on at that time?
2: Very much so. Uh, you know, the retrenchment that Dave talked about is very much a national phenomenon. In fact, it's one of the reasons why our organization was born in 1969 uh, as the National Association of Railroad Passengers. And The idea was to uh, fight to preserve passenger rail as it was uh, eroding all across the country. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, If you look at the immediate post-war period, uh, the government spent a lot of money subsidizing highways and air travel, um, and railroads did not get any of that. As a matter of fact, um, most of the spending on uh, passenger rail In the immediate post war period, came from the railroads themselves. And before air travel was as ubiquitous as it is now, um, rail travel, long distance rail travel, really was the way that a lot of folks got across the country. And the train companies sort of competed with one another for the passenger experience. Now, they have uh, what by law is called a common carrier responsibility. Uh, which means you show up, you buy your fare, they have to take you where you're trying to go. And increasingly into the 60s, um, meeting that common carrier requirement uh, as the uh, subsidized air travel system was sucking passengers away, just became untenable. They just couldn't do it. Um, And they started taking passenger service uh, away uh, line by line, route by route, company by company. And so Amtrak was born in 1971 uh, through a a piece of legislation which our organization helped to to shepherd through the Congress. And the idea behind it was a kind of grand bargain that said to the uh, railroads, we will take on, we, the federal government, will take on the responsibility for uh, running passenger service that you now have to provide as a common carrier. We'll take it all, we'll take the coaches we'll take the the locomotives, we'll take the staff, we'll take the pension obligations, we'll take all of it off your hands. And in exchange, you have to give us priority dispatch across all of your uh, networks all across the country. And that seemed like a pretty fair deal. Um, They were instantly relieved of their uh, financial obligations Mm -hmm. associated with passenger service. And to this day, Amtrak is still cutting pension checks to people who never wore an Amtrak badge. And the reason this happened was again, because there was a a subsidized competition. Uh, And so Amtrak was born not to be a, a a giant vibrant competitive system, but as a stopgap measure to preserve the minimum elements of a skeletal service across the United States um, to preserve service in places where private industry could not profitably provide it. And that was really why Amtrak was born, and it's why Amtrak uh, continues to be a taxpayer-supported enterprise, because it has a public service mission of supplying uh, transportation and mobility to communities where the private sector can't afford to provide it. Is it
1: fair to think of Amtrak as sort of akin in a way to the Postal Service? Is that a decent analogy in, in terms of how it structures and its, its objectives?
2: It is. It's a very fair analogy. Um, and uh, over the years, Amtrak has tried to uh, make itself leaner, more businesslike, more competitive. Uh, and uh, they've, they've done a lot of that. They've gotten to the point uh, last year uh, where uh, they were very close to covering all of their operating costs uh, from fares. And uh, the, the that's a pretty remarkable feat for sure. any railroad. Um, there isn't one in the world that does that. Um, and uh, until the coronavirus pandemic uh, torpedoed the ridership, Amtrak was on pace for another year of record ridership.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the the reason for that is really very much like the reason why the postal service survives. Because it's a, it, it's more than, just like the Postal Service is a lot more than mail. Amtrak is a lot more than just uh, coaches running through a town. Um, it's an economic engine in every community that it serves. And if you don't believe me, go up and uh, talk to the folks in Cutbank and see how much uh, they would hate to see the empire Builder stop uh, coming to their town. Indeed. Uh, the numbers are pretty stark.
1: Yeah. So Jordan, let's kind of bring you into the conversation at this point. You represent both the city and the university in many ways. You know, what's kind of your your perspective on the history and the importance of, of rail to, uh, to a, a city like Missoula and, and a campus like the University of Montana?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, uh, Jim and Dave really um, gave a good comprehensive history, and like so much of our of our history in the post-World War II era, um, we made so many decisions around um, building up a car-centric, um, highway-driven, uh, uh, urban environment. Um, and now today, we're grappling with the consequences of how we designed our cities um, in the years, uh, in the decades after World War II. And um, as, as Jim said, um, you know, the, the subsidization of, of, of highways and of, of automobiles and of our street network um, led to um, some real uh, consequences that we're um, that we're um, working through now. So I think now, um, you know, in, in an urban setting, um, we have um, new urbanist movements. We have uh, traditional neighborhood design. Um, we're really being critical about how we're designing our streets and our neighborhoods. Uh, we're designing uh, at a more human scale um and and um we're really trying to reframe um uh how we live in cities and i think um the long distance rail travel is a is a natural extension of that um that um it is um, to me it's a priority moving forward because it it is you know it's a convenient efficient uh mode and it, it it's um it's good for our health it's good for our environment and it's good for our communities um and um so, you know, a lot of reasons why we got to where we are, um, but as we pivot on uh, on so many issues relating to, um, you know, design of our communities, relating to climate resiliency, um, it's part of the solution moving forward.
1: Yeah, let's tease out some of that, those reasons why. I mean, you mentioned community health, you mentioned uh, sustainability. I mean, what are some of the primary arguments in favor of rail? I mean, I think of it like here in Montana, we got a lot of wide open spaces. People love to drive around in in their trucks and, you know, be sort of free to do that. There's a little bit of a libertarian spirit. Um, Rail seems... Um, in conflict with some of that spirit, let's make, let's make the case for why it is uh, a good choice for Montana. Jim, I see that you have some thoughts on this.
2: Well, for one thing, um, there are plenty of people who simply aren't able to drive a pickup truck. Uh, and, you know, when, when grandma is in a wheelchair with oxygen, she still has the right to move around the state. Sure. And uh, she can't fly. Uh, you can't bring medical oxygen on an airplane. And we certainly don't want grandma with her cataracts driving in a truck 75 miles an hour down the highway. That's for sure. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's it's a little bit of a, a, a facetious uh, uh, point, but in, in a way it's not. Um, a lot of Amtrak's ridership, an outsized share of Amtrak's ridership is the disabled and the elderly, people who really can't travel in any other way. So that's one big piece of it. The other is that the statistics are pretty clear that Um, Driving is about 17 times more dangerous than riding in a train. Hmm. Uh, And so if you figure in the cost of road fatalities, road maintenance, um, and wear and tear, uh, and the ability to travel through bad weather, uh, not as if Montana ever gets bad weather on the highways. No, we're not familiar with that. No, no. But, (laughs) you know, trains can go and others can't. And that helps to keep economies moving. So there are so many reasons like that uh, that we can point to, whether it's the environmental piece, the mobility piece, um, the economic development piece. Uh, On almost every measure, uh, rail tends to win. If you pull apart the the sort of the romantic notion of a, a big steam engine blowing steam and start to look at the practicalities of linking dozens of communities together with a single train and a single crew, it's very efficient. It costs less money per passenger, and it's better in bad weather. And more people can travel, so it really does turn out to be a smart thing to do, and not just a fun thing to do.
1: Yeah, Dave, let's bring you back into the conversation here. Kind of chime in on um, some of those ideas that Jim just put out there, as far as how you know why did why did this argument kind of. Draw you in? Why did you decide? Because you've been working on this project for a long time. Why? Why did you decide to kind of stake your claim here?
0: Yeah, all the reasons that Jim mentioned are absolutely salient and are ones that I uh, I share as as common reasons why rail should be revisited as a mode of transportation. In my current role, uh, serving as a county commissioner, and and in that role advocating for a path forward to restore rail service. I've heard from folks all across the state of Montana, from Thompson Falls, clear over to Glendive, a couple examples. One hits on something that Jim mentioned from the standpoint of equity and providing transportation for folks who might otherwise not have great options. I, I heard recently from a gentleman over in Billings who is visually impaired and does not find air travel all that convenient, is unable to drive. And so there's a constituency, even in a sparsely populated state like Montana, who otherwise might not have great transportation options were it not for a rail connection. Another constituency that I've heard from, and this connects with the economic development, uh, uh front and there you can hear a train. yeah did we background. just hear Actually, a train so in the residents. background uh, how ironic um, that's
1: awesome right on <laughs> cue
0: so uh, I've heard from CEOs of high-tech companies across uh, Montana who really wish that they would have passenger rail as a way to move between their various offices within the state and for any of us who've uh, had the opportunity to, to fly and have been crammed in those aluminum cylinders, trying to conduct any real work while you're, you're traveling via air is a challenge, to say the least. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity to actually do work while you're traveling on a train and also use that as a a means to attract uh, a workforce that is increasingly interested in sustainable modes of uh, transportation and living and being is is super attractive to some businesses.
1: So, you know, as, as Jim and Dave were talking about some of the accessibility benefits to rail, uh, particularly for, you know, people with, you know, older folks or folks that maybe don't have the ability to travel uh, in a car or, or, or fly. Um, Jordan, it occurs to me that, you know, Working at the university, you you represent sort of the other end of the demographic spectrum in some ways. You could could construct a lot of arguments that rail would be beneficial to the student population as well.
3: Yeah, it's a great point. I, I think um, uh, from some of our survey research of incoming students, um, we find that students um, are very comfortable living a car-free life in Missoula. Um, Missoula is very easy to get around um, on foot, by by bicycle, by transit. Um, and there are two things that are challenges. And one of those is access to recreation. And one of them is, is going home for Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really hard to get to Billings or Mile City or um, any community uh, in Montana um, from Missoula without, uh, without a car. Um, and so um, actually um, owning a car, according to um, uh, AAA statistics, uh, um, owning and maintaining and operating a car is, is more expensive than in-state tuition at the University of Montana. So if we think about, um, about equitable access to, to education, um, transportation costs are a big part of that. Um, and I think rail is a piece of the puzzle in, in terms of um, reducing barriers um, uh, for those students. And so, like I said before, I think I think rail has the opportunity to be really a great equalizer here. Um, you know, that that theoretical grandmother uh, that Jim mentioned, my, my grandma uh, takes the train from from Haver to visit family over in, in um, the Whitefish area. Um, couple times a year. And it's a mm-hmm. trip that she wouldn't be able to take without, um, without that option available. And I think one of the great things about rail is that it can be a social service like that. It can be an essential transportation service. And, and right alongside folks that are using the train for that reason, you've got tourists on a, on a sleeper berth that are coming to visit our national parks and, and bring uh, tourism dollars into the, into the state. Um, so it really is kind of um, serving um, a lot of different populations. And, and that's one of the real cool things about it.
2: You know, the, the tourism piece is, is really, truly nothing to sneeze at. Um, and I, I'm going to use an example, again, from Montana um, to just make the point that if you look at Cut Bank, uh, this is a, a, a small community. And uh, overall, uh, the, the share of everyone's federal tax dollars that goes to uh, Amtrak for, from the entire town is about $16,000 for, for everybody in the town chipping in together. What they get back every year in um, tourism-related benefit is about $127,000 for that money. Uh, And if you look at the Empire Builder as an entire route from Chicago to Seattle, we spend as a nation a little bit more than $56, $57 million every year to have an Empire Builder service. And for that, the 10 states that are served derive $327 million in benefits. Hmm. That's a lot of things, but that's a lot of that is, is people coming to communities, spending their money, staying in hotels, uh, drinking in the, in the local bars, going to the, the tourist destinations, going hiking, going fishing, doing all of those things, and and leaving their money behind in the local economy. And when they do that, the people who work in those places have money to spend within the economy. And so there's a multiplier effect that a lot of people don't really think about. And that is where the benefit really comes from.
1: A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over
0: Montana. Hey, this is Ryan Tutell of ESPN Radio in Missoula, and you're listening to A New Angle. Jim is absolutely right. Uh, For too long, when we've looked at opportunities for reestablishing rail service we've more often than not focused on how much is this going to cost invariably mm-hmm. that's one of the first questions someone asks me is how much is it going to cost to do this and i like to turn that on its head similar to the real life examples that that jim pointed out in our very own state of montana cut bank is rather than just looking at the cost what is the benefit and the benefits economic and otherwise are huge for uh, uh, most conversations that uh, i get in with skeptics about passenger rail their default position is is it going to pay for itself and my comeback to that is Yeah, it'll pay for itself, just like the airline industry and our interstate highway system pay for themselves, which is, it requires some level of of public investment to make this happen, because these are social goods that we have as a society determined is important to have, and that is equitable transportation options. So there are huge economic benefits that accrue to this. Uh, That's been demonstrable in places where passenger rail currently exists. And by extension, I think we have seen uh, that the opportunity exists in places where uh, passenger rail currently does not exist.
1: It's so interesting that we get into these sort of entrenched mindsets. I mean, Dave, you mentioned that the first kind of question you get is how much is this going to cost me or us or we can't afford it or whatever. And, and, And it's always sort of... The The straw man of the status quo seems really prominent. Like it's, it's really, we have a system that's kind of a bad design. Like each one of us driving around in these cages of steel that are remarkably dangerous. Um, it's kind of a bad design for getting people around and we're finding that it's, it's not sustainable on many dimensions yet, you know, rail is seen as this, this old thing, um, but maybe it was better all along. Let's transition to sort of how ha- like outside of the cost piece, how do you actually get something like this done? Like how do you, you know, Dave, Jordan, you you two are, are elected officials. Like, how do you build coalitions? How do you like make something like this happen? This is a big idea. This isn't just trying to get, you know, the sidewalks fixed on Higgins Street. This is this is a big idea. Um, Jordan, your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, you know, I think um, uh, probably the most important thing is that we we can and do uh, accomplish big things all the time. Um, we do them at the local level, whether it's something like um, acquiring and operating our our water utility system, or um, or working on our 10-year plan to end homelessness, mm-hmm. or or any other large-scale project that we that we try to accomplish um, at the local level. I think the thing that's particularly challenging about this is that it it stretches across jurisdictional lines. So it, it stretches from, uh, you know, the, the city to the county, into the neighboring county, into lots the neighboring of state, lines. and, and it, absolutely. And, and, you know, there are, there are state and federal uh, uh, regulatory and, and, and uh, you know, and there are state and federal hurdles, I guess, as well as, um, as well as, um, you know, the, the need to line up local support along an entire um, corridor And um, so I think that's probably why this the solution has um, has been out of reach for the last 41 years is that um, it's just a really big uh, web to untangle, and um, so I'm, I'm really um, grateful for the work that Dave has done to uh, you know to really start connecting counties and, and I'm sure he can talk to that, but I, I think um, that's uh, you know just uh, getting out and talking about it, raising awareness um, at um, you know raising awareness here in Missoula, raising awareness across the state um, in, in other communities and across the country in other uh, cities and counties that would be impacted.
1: yeah Dave, your perspective on trying to get something big like this done?
0: I agree with Jordan. We have to some extent forgotten what it means to be able to accomplish bold visions. Mm -hmm. It was just a few months ago that the highest priority that we were grappling with locally in what I would call the the bold vision category beyond expanded passenger rail service, which, which uh, is something we've been uh, about for a while, but was how do we, how do we crack the nut of addressing and mitigating the effects of climate change locally this is a big problem that extends beyond our jurisdictional borders uh, to the national and international level and it's something that i think many folks have felt out of reach but many of us believe it's absolutely necessary that we need to address well along comes COVID 19 and Believe it or not, our nation has undertaken doing what is necessary and spending not billions or hundreds of billions, but trillions of dollars to help us navigate this, this national crisis. And if anything, I would hope that that helps remind us that when, if and when we do recognize that something is necessary and important to do, we can do it. And that means at times investing significant public resources into that effort. So I think a first step in any of this is helping spark the imagination of our constituents and our friends and neighbors that collectively we can make big things happen still.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe when we come out of this COVID-19 situation, it'll finally be infrastructure week. Um, I've sort of been waiting for that for a long time, but this is, I mean, that's, that's a bit of, you know, dismissive humor, but Dave, you're right. Like this, we're going to be in an economic mess for a long period of time. And, and we need big ideas to mobilize people, put them to work on big projects. And if we can do it in such a way that creates enduring economic benefits and structures that also happen to be better for the planet and maybe better for the health of our populace, why the hell not?
0: Yeah, and absolutely, and and what I am all about is not trying the same thing, expecting different results. Sure. So, so for many decades, uh, four decades plus one year to pers- be precise since we lost passenger rail service, there have been these oscillating efforts uh, and, and periods of enthusiasm and waning enthusiasm to make this happen, and oftentimes that's been motivated by uh, individuals, key individuals, or advocacy groups, and so the question that many of us, uh, some of us on this call today, have been grappling with is is how do we approach this differently that doesn't simply deliver the same uh, um, kind of wet blanket on enthusiasm that we've experienced too many times before. I do think reigniting this vision of what is possible, uh, is, is a part of that equation, sure. but we have taken some other efforts, uh, uh, here locally to try to expand the scope of what local government can do that we really have not attempted in the past. Hmm.
1: So Jim, do you have any, are there any case studies across the country on, you know, communities or regions that have brought, a, a passenger rail system back into operation and, and how, how, One, how did those get done? And then, you know, what have been some of the benefits?
0: So
2: there have been a a few, uh, probably uh, I'd like to point to two, I think is sort of the, the, the archetypes. Um, One is just getting underway and that's uh, the service in the U S Southeast, the Gulf coast Um, that was uh, wiped out by hurricane Katrina. And uh, once the, hurricane was over, the track was rebuilt, but the service has not been restored. And it's been 13 years. Hmm. And it took a lot of effort by a lot of folks, a lot of political pushing, and a lot of conversations like the one we're having now uh, to get to a place where just in February, the final piece uh, came together in the form of approval from the Mobile Alabama City Council to move forward. And uh, now we're getting ready to restore a little teeny piece of what was once service from new Orleans to Jacksonville. Uh, We'll be running new Orleans uh, to mobile. And uh, just that little piece alone is expected to generate $170 million a year worth of benefit. And they're going to spend something like uh, five or $6 million to run it. Hmm. So, uh, you know, one thing I like to, to, say is that, you know, passenger rail is wildly profitable. It's just not necessarily profitable to the operator. And that's, what's been true when you see these services come back. Um, if you look at, uh, in Maine, uh, the, the train called the Downeaster, which runs from, uh, from Maine down to Boston, it's a fairly short run, a little over two and a half hours. Uh, and yet it has attracted billions of dollars of private capital along the route. And, uh, Every one of those communities has benefited from the existence of that train. And the ridership just keeps growing and growing and growing. Uh, that was essentially the brainchild of, of one man in Maine, uh, a banker uh, who uh, just had a vision for bringing the service back after years of, of absence. And he really was just bullheaded about it as a, as a kind of one man uh, lobbying shop. And here we are, uh, close to two decades later, with a train that uh, dozens of communities could not possibly live without. And so uh, if you want to look at a smaller scale, just because it's easier to get your head around the numbers, look at a place like Meridian, Mississippi. Hmm. Very small town, served twice a day by Amtrak's Crescent. And uh, the mayor of uh, Meridian, who uh, went on to become the, the chairman of Amtrak for a little while... Um, John Robert Smith, he essentially found $5 million in the couch cushions as the mayor to refurbish the train station into the very first intermodal station in the South. So it brought together buses and other kinds of public transportation to the Amtrak station so that people could continue their trips. And you know that that has attracted 170 times the initial investment in the form of private capital and investment investment. In the area around the station a new opera house new hotels restaurants you name it and this is in tiny little meridian mississippi so really everywhere you look there are examples of putting this investment in and getting back seven times eight times ten times or more what you put in to bring the service back there are lots of case studies out there if people would just go visit the communities and see for themselves
1: so when we're talking about bringing this back, like, let's get a little mechanical here. Like, I assume on this route, some of the track exists and is fully operational. Other track might need some sort of maintenance. And then we got to talk about the the, the locomotives and and the passenger cars. Like, how is that part of the project? Yeah, how do we, we're not flipping the switch, we're rebuilding. What does that kind of look like in the plan?
2: Well, I'll start, but I think Dave should um, fill in more of the local details. But certainly, um, bringing back a railroad is not easy. It's one reason why all of us as rail advocates fight so hard when folks try to take rail out of service all around the country. Because once you've taken it out, it can be very difficult to bring it back. Um, The biggest piece of the the puzzle is going to be something called positive train control. Now, I won't get too wonky about it, um, but it is... um, a way of ensuring that trains are uh, maintain a safe distance from one another and that we know where trains are and that they don't overspeed and and things like that it's kind of the equivalent of air traffic control for trains and that is a mandate uh, a little over a decade ago and there's equipment that has to be bought and put into place and there's technical challenges with getting it going and that's probably going to be the biggest Uh, piece that's going to have to be addressed uh, is ensuring that you have um, positive training control installed throughout the route. Now, it's being done all over the country. It's being done by commuter rails, by Amtrak, by everyone else. Um, But it's certainly something, it's a piece of the investment that you might not have had to make 20 years ago. You certainly have to do it now. The rest of it is going to be about restoring track that may have been pulled up for trails, uh, or the rail itself is degraded, or the, the ties Uh, have degraded. The ballast, which is the little rocks underneath the the ties, may have degraded. Um, So there's some construction work there that would have to be done as well. On the other hand, in a time of uh, economic crisis, that's a stimulus. It's putting people to Mm -hmm. work, building and rebuilding, and installing the positive train control systems. So there's actually something of a benefit to going through and improving that track. Sure. Dave, your thoughts?
0: as we're thinking about stimulus and the sort of transportation system we want for the future it really is the moment to take a hard look at how we invest those those collective dollars and resources uh, it's not good enough in the the world of covid-19 and the post covid-19 world that we hope will soon uh, be upon us to look in the rearview mirror and try to recreate an economy and and all of the systems that go with that exactly as it was in the early spring months of 2020. I, I think this is an opportunity and maybe is a silver lining in this crisis that we're in, in that we can take a moment to say, how do we want to uh, invest our precious resources going forward? And And that very well, I think, is uh, a piece of the restoration of passenger rail service. So specifically, here in Montana, in southern Montana, uh, if you look at the the main trunk line from uh, essentially over in Glendive uh, West uh, to Thompson Falls, we're not talking about creating something that either never existed before or does not exist now it's improving the system that we have because there are freight trains that are rolling over these tracks as we speak one of which we might have heard on the, uh, the audio recording a little sure. while sure. ago but it's it is including upgrades or uh, or creating that positive Uh, train control system that that may or may not exist on portions of this line. It's including additional double tracking. uh, And by that, I mean making sure that there is enough track uh, that is uh, uh, parallel that would allow two trains to pass such that either a passenger train isn't impeding uh, freight traffic or vice versa, that freight traffic isn't... uh, making passenger trains pull off at a siding somewhere and and be grossly late in their their schedules. Mm -hmm. It also includes including something like uh, uh, what's called super elevations again. Uh, That's a fancy way of saying if you you think of uh, trains that that move at a higher rate of speed that might at corners uh, uh, include some banking of the tracks to allow that higher rate of speed Some of that uh, was removed when the Southern Line became strictly accommodating freight back in the day. So there will need to be changes, absolutely. There would need to be rolling stock and the trains themselves uh, acquired for this service. But I see it all as a part of investing in our transportation future.
1: Sure. Well, let's try to... um you know, land this ship or bring this train into station, so to speak. Um, we're coming up at the, at the end of our time, but I'd love to hear from each one of you kind of a singular piece of like, what gives you hope that, that this time we are going to break through and, um, what you could ask of, of a listener who's interested in contributing to the effort, supporting it, uh, getting involved, where would you direct them? Maybe Jordan, will will start with you.
3: Sure. And I think, um, we're in a really challenging time um, locally and as a nation and as a world right now with, um, with the impact of of COVID-19. And I think um, this pandemic has really exposed some cracks in the foundation. Uh, There are some structural problems um, with our economy, with our uh, social safety nets, with our infrastructure, um, with the way we do business in general. And I think um, to me, um, it's really important that we um, learn from this, that we that we learn how to um, to fix some of those societal challenges. Um, you know, actually, a lot uh, just in terms of urban design came out of the uh, the um, 1918 pandemic mm-hmm. um, uh, in terms of designs of, of of open space, in terms of um, you know apartment buildings with balconies, um, places to get respite and get fresh air, and just as we've learned from the last. Um, half century of, of suburban and, and auto-oriented design, and, and we're retooling and, and creating new ways of building cities. I think we need to think about um, about public sector investment in a in a new way, in a bold new way. Um, I think we need to really um, just dig right in on these inv- on these infrastructure projects and on on these um, these social safety net projects. Um, I think. Um, uh, public sector involvement is is going to be more important now um, than ever, and um, so it's a it's a big challenge. Um, but we've done big things before, and so I think right now um, we come together and we um, and we rebuild our economy and we rebuild our infrastructure and we um, and we um, uh, dust ourselves off and 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 move onward and upward to, uh, the best that we can. And the best way that I think we can do that is by coming together and working on on big projects together.
1: Super. Jim, your thoughts on that?
2: So for one thing, I think that um, in the near term, almost everyone uh, in official Washington agrees that infrastructure and infrastructure investment is one of the best ways we can find to jumpstart an economy that's been damaged. This is true uh, across the political spectrum, left or right, Democrat, Republican, um, where people differ is on the details. Uh, but uh, we've been seeing even before the coronavirus pandemic that there's been an appetite for a major infrastructure investment program. Um, the numbers have ranged from $1 trillion to $2 trillion. Before the coronavirus crisis, that was considered a breathtaking number. And now we, as Dave mentioned, we managed to find $2.2 trillion in the couch cushions just to get us through the coronavirus uh, crisis. So, I think there is an appetite uh, on the national scale to do infrastructure projects of size. And um, we've also found that uh, there is an agreement, uh, both uh, left and right, that passenger rail has a role to play, particularly in rural mobility. There was a time when that wasn't true. Uh, But last year, uh, we saw 95 senators out of 100 vote for policy language that supported Amtrak's long distance network and the viability of that network. Now, that's kind of an extraordinary moment when you consider that in the past, uh, a lot of Republicans have been very hostile to passenger rail. Mm -hmm. We're at a place now where there is appetite for making the investments to make it better. And now with the coronavirus, there is a real need and urgency to doing an infrastructure package that will put Americans back to work. My sense is that this is a moment where all those forces could come together and make this happen for those that are prepared to accept the investment and have a plan that is well thought out and they're, they're really ready to go. Super. Dave?
0: So the time for extreme creativity and political engagement is upon us. That could mean looking at public-private partnerships to work with Amtrak to make this a reality. It could also and must mean that we engage our elected officials at the local and at the the state and federal level for that matter. A couple of the things that we are actively working on here in Missoula County is... establish a coalition of other counties in the state of Montana Mm -hmm. to form a regional passenger rail authority within the state. This is something that state law authorizes us to do, and I think would be a logical extension of next steps to to bring this to reality. We're also looking at a a Southern Rail Commission model, which uh, could be replicated here in the Pacific Northwest, and and this would be a multi-state rail commission that would recognize that, that this, is a, this is truly a regional effort and, and it's not just within the boundaries of the state of Montana or Idaho or Washington or Oregon. We all need to be ta- talking to one another and working with our congressional delegation. So if, if you have not already, uh, folks out there should contact our congressional delegation. If you think passenger rail is an important thing, contact your county commissioners And also, we are planning this fall, uh, depending on COVID-19, it may end up being virtual uh, or it could be in person, but we're looking at trying to organize a passenger rail summit for the Mm -hmm. state of Montana. And if folks are interested in uh, participating in that or supporting that, we are just launching a website, which is montanapassengerrailsummit.org, and we encourage folks to check it out.
1: And you can join the Passenger Rail Association, Jim's organization. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for for coming on the show and kind of explaining uh, this issue to our listeners and motivating us to get involved and to to think big in this moment of the crisis. All the best in your efforts. Um, we're going to be watching this story. Hopefully, we'll we'll bring you back on to sort of give us a status update in the near future. Um, and fingers crossed this thing will be uh, more more down the track, so to speak. I can't really say down the road because that's contrary to what we're trying to do here. Down the track. How's that?
0: Sounds down- great. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Justin. Thanks, thanks Justin. Thanks, thanks a lot.
1: Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that a new angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, our awesome interns, Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson, Jeff Amet, John Wicks, and VTO for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.